Good morning, everybody. Wake up. It's Monday morning. Hey, it may be Tuesday evening. It might even be the weekend. Whenever you're listening to this podcast, we want you to know that this podcast is brought to you by Lazari Italian Oven. If you are in the Northeast Arkansas area and you've been eating at those chain Italian restaurants, I want you to know that is not Italian food the way that God intended for it to be eaten. You need to get yourself down to 2230 South Caraway Road. When you go in there, get you a table. I would suggest to you to get the crab meat stuffed tenderloin. You're going to get a filet mignon that's been butterflied that has crab meat and other seafood stuffing in it. It's going to have pasta on the side. It has mixed vegetables. You have the option before the meal to get any appetizers, salads, soups. After the meal, you've got a variety of desserts you can choose from. If it's a busy weeknight and you need to call ahead and go get an order that's picked up, call them at 1-870-931-4700 and tell them the conversation sent you. Brian, let me tell you about our next sponsor. Tell me about it. These guys are awesome. This podcast is also brought to you by Mike and Lisa Barber. These folks are licensed realtors with the Jonesboro Realty Group. Look, if you're looking to buy, if you're looking to sell, maybe you're just looking to rent, guys, Mike and Lisa Barber are there for you. They'll work hard to help in whatever your needs are. Here's the cool thing about Mike and Lisa, Brian. You get two realtors working on your behalf. Go ahead and call Mike at 870-761-1000. It's the first step. And listen, it, 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 it takes no harm to look around and see what's out there, guys. That's 870-761-1000. Tell Mike that the conversation sent you. Pastors and board members, if you're listening, we need you to hear this, is that you only have one chance to make a good first impression. And whenever a guest is coming in your parking lot, one of the first things we're going to see is the parking lot itself. And let me tell you, you don't want to have one of those bitter gray parking lots that looks like it's about to start raining upside down. What What does that mean? Don't worry about it. <laughs> you, you don't want a parking lot that's got a bunch of potholes and cracks in it and a big crack running from the sidewalk to the back lot. What you need is you need a company that's going to come in and seal that parking lot for you. And call them today. It is Seal It Up Corporation. Tony, why don't you tell me about it? So this podcast, like Brian said, is brought to you by Seal It Up Company Incorporated, locally owned and operated by Craig O'Brien out of Northeast Arkansas. Brian, but here's the cool thing about this company. It's a traveling company. They don't what? just stay they don't just stay in the Northeast Arkansas area. This company takes care of parking lot maintenance such as asphalt, seal coating, line striping, patchwork pothole filling it does not matter they take care of it all from from driveways to corporations to parking lots for the church it doesn't matter you know what sets them apart brian let me let me tell you what sets them apart from let these me other. guess because they give back they give back here's the thing they give back donations to churches and nonprofit organizations who else do you know that owns a company that does something like nobody that? so give craig a call today at 897-4787 that's 870-897-4787 and what do they need to tell them that the crucial conversation sent them guys get that curb appeal back You're about to listen to a very intimate conversation that Tony and I had a few weeks back with Pastor Jimmy and Jelaine Lumpkin. They pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas at Word of Flame Fellowship. You're not going to find two individuals with more passion and more love for people than these people. They are very well known and in our organization, very respected here in Arkansas. And again, like I said, all around, they've, they've spoken it because of the times. And one of their biggest heartbeats that's very personal to them is prodigal children coming back to the faith. 
and Brian, whenever we sent this podcast to them and uh, let them approve it and you know let them hear our edits, I considered taking out the pauses in this podcast. And the reason we chose not to get rid of the pauses in the podcast is because, like you said, it is a very intimate conversation we have with them. We hope you all enjoy this conversation. You gave me a mother's heart. What do I do with it when it's broke? What do I do with a mother's heart that has been shattered? How do I, how do I not get angry? How do I not get so to the place where I give up? And there, it would be at those times when the, just like the Lord would come alongside me and say, I am the heart mender. I guard your heart and your mind. Trust me, my nail scarred hands with your heart. The only difference in a backslider and me is the amount of time it takes me to repent. That's why Paul said I died daily. When, I, when, when the conviction hits, I repent. For a prodigal or a backslider, sometimes they don't, they don't respond to that voice for a year or two years or 20 years or whatever. That's the only difference in me and a backslider, how long it takes me to repent. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Uh, this evening, we are, th- or actually right now, it's just afternoon, and we are thankful to be sitting down tonight, or, or again, this afternoon, or depending on whenever you're listening <laughs> to it, with Pastor James and Sister Jelaine Lumpkin here in Little Rock, Arkansas. They pastor here at Word of Flame. And I noticed out on the sign it said that this was the first Pentecostal church that was in Little Rock. Is that, did I read that correctly? That's right. Awesome. Um, you, pastor Lumpkin, you have a beautiful office. This is a beautiful church. And a few things uh, that I noticed whenever I came in is I noticed uh, here to, to our wall, there's pictures of you meeting uh, President Bill Clinton. How did this meeting come about? Well, that that the picture was taken, I believe, in Alexandria when the president came there for their Messiah production, and uh, we were invited. My family, my father, got acquainted with Bill Clinton back when he was running for. Uh, Congressman Hammerschmidt's seat. He ended up getting beat, but that's when we both met him. And of course, he's known for having an incredible memory, and he never forgot. So that's how that all started. Awesome, because I've heard the, the stories of how Bill Clinton would come to the Arkansas camp meetings, and I knew that he knew your father very well, and, and Brother Thomas, and uh, and it's just interesting to see. Again, like I noticed also here in the office, you had a birthday letter from him, and so that that is incredible that a sitting president would would uh, even though that he's in Washington D.C. and is the highest office in land, still remembers the people that he met whenever he was first getting started in Arkansas. Um, again, we thank you both for for coming and sitting down with us, uh, Sister Jelaine. How did you and Pastor Lumpkin meet? We met in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1969 at um, Apostolic Bible Institute College up there. So that's where we first met. 
Tell us a little bit about who you are, sister. I mean, you have a rich heritage in the apostolic faith. Share with our listeners who you are. I am fourth generation Pentecost. My grandparents um, voted on Brother and Sister Urshan when they went to Calvary Tabernacle. I was not born yet. And um, that was my pastor until I went to Bible school in St. Paul with Brother Urshan and Sister Urshan. My mother was a single mother. My dad died when I was five and she didn't remarry. So I was just a saint's kid on a pew, but my mother was involved in the choir, teaching Sunday school, cooking meals. She was involved in the whole thing, so that was just my life. Um, That's all I knew. So going to Bible school was just a natural for me. It was just the word. So that's what I did. Pastor Lumpkin, tell us a little bit about your background, your history. Where do you come from? Well, I was born in Sherman, Texas, when my dad was in the Air Force. And Sherman's where my parents got in the church, uh, received the Holy Ghost. And um, when he went into the ministry, he went off to Bible college at ABI in 1955. And life has just been, you know, following a man with a call on his life. Um, He went to Bible college, graduated, taught there. Then he moved us to Knoxville, Iowa, where he pastored for three years, and then back to ABI to teach some more. From there, we went to St. Louis, where my father was um, director for the Harvest Time broadcast. And while there, I graduated from high school in St. Louis. And then he moved us to Arkansas in 1969. How old were you when you moved here? I just graduated, so I was 18. 18 years old. And it wasn't long after that that uh, your father actually became the district superintendent in the state of Arkansas, correct? I think it probably was maybe three years later he became superintendent. I'm not sure about that, but probably three years later. That sparks the question for me. What does the Arkansas district campground mean to the both of you guys I mean that is such a prominent place Redfield in the state of Arkansas what what does Redfield mean to you guys well I as a saints kid on a pew uh, being thrown into the ministry like that I wasn't used to it but um, if you had brother sister Lumpkin senior as your uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law their whole idea of ministry was you're involved 24-7 and um, so we just I would spend the whole the whole time we were at camp, I would spend the whole weekend there. I wouldn't even come back to Fort Smith at the time. I just stayed there because I helped teach and um, helped work in the dorms and all that. So, yeah, we spent our whole first years of marriage there on the campground just involved in the whole thing. It's what we did, and I still love it. It's got great memories um, down there in the superintendent's cabin, uh, great memories down there, people coming in and out, all the people I was privileged to meet that my in-laws and my husband knew that I had never met one-on-one. I'm just, um, feel so honored by all that. So did you know before you married your husband that, that he was called to preach? No, and I didn't really think about it, I guess, because back in that time, you just went to Bible school and I was going, because I really felt like I was going to be a missionary. I really did. So my focus was on that. And we did become home missionaries, but it wasn't with the purpose of this is what we're going to do. Because back then, there were were no programs when we went to Bible school for that. 
Um, but I just really felt the call to be involved in ministry and especially missions of some kind. And I still love it. I still love it. So you've always felt a, a pull to ministry yourself? Correct. Yeah. Yes, always. I have. So when you guys first got married, how? when was your first pastoral ship, brother? Um, were you, what was your ministry when you guys first got married? When we first got married, we were just helping out in the church in Fort Smith. Uh, I, we didn't really, uh, other than her being a teacher, you know, didn't have a position really. Um, so was involved in everything, but wasn't in a position at all. One of uh, my favorite questions that we seem to ask a lot of pastors is just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you don't have a pastor in your life. Uh, I'm assuming B.J. Thomas is the pastor in your life. Is that correct? Yes. When my dad passed away, um, I told Brother Thomas he was my pastor. What does B.J. Thomas's ministry mean to you, not just on a ministry level, but on a personal level? Well, Brother Thomas worked with my father in Fort Smith as an assistant, then an associate, and then a co-pastor. Um, after, I don't remember how many years, I was gone some of that time to Bible college, but um, once my dad was elected as superintendent, he continued to pastor, but the way I remember it turned more and more responsibility over to Brother Thomas until my father finally made the decision to be to work full-time as a superintendent. So um, my feelings for the Thomases go back to uh, the incredible loyalty they showed my parents for, for many years. They weren't just ministry associates, they were close, close friends and were always that to my parents, incredibly loyal. That's that's a word that gets tossed around, but I don't think it gets the respect that that word truly means. To have somebody who's loyal as a friend in ministry that stands by your back, I mean, that is something that is almost irreplaceable, especially today in, in, in the 21st century churches. You don't really find loyalty like it seems like there really was, you know, back in back in the old days but you guys traveled you guys left the state of Arkansas was was that your first pastoral ship when you left the state of Arkansas we we left uh, after we were married we left for a year and went to Plano Texas uh, and was there where my son he was he my son was born there we went to uh, Plano, where uh, Mickey and Anthony Mangan had just assumed a pastorate, and we were there for a year. Again, just working with them, really <laughs> working 24-7, trying to make a living with a kid on the way, and uh, but we're there for a year before we moved back to Fort Smith. Now, when you were with brother and sister Mangan in Plano, that was before he was Anthony Mangan. 
but you there's there's a relationship or not a relationship but a um, there's family ties there how are you you guys related to the mangans correct yes mickey's my sister mickey's your sister and anthony mangan's always been anthony mangan anthony mangan's always been anthony mangan yeah before he became pastor there he was a very well-known and accomplished evangelist right and so my favorite part of anthony mangan's ministry is probably his his rich history um G.A. Mangan has to be one of the the biggest pioneers in our Pentecostal movement. And to be linked to that, I mean, that is such an awesome thing that you guys can say. Uh, but when you guys left Plano and you came back to Fort Smith, when did you guys know it was time to transition as a pastor? Well, let, let, let me say something related to what you just said. <laughs> okay. The best part of Anthony Mangan is Mickey Mangan. Exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Ask me the question again. Whenever you guys came back to Fort Smith, uh, that transition time, when did you know that it was time to transition into pastoralship? Do you remember specifically being called to pastor? I remember being called to start a church. We, uh, In Fort Smith, we hosted a what was then known as a home missions training seminar where they would bring in uh, couples who were starting churches or had just started a church. And it was like three days of training um, and our, they, they would do that on an annual basis and pick a location. And one year they picked Fort Smith. I was just working a job, going to church. We were married. And uh, had... I don't remember everyone on the program. I don't even remember who the home missions director was at the time. I don't know if it was, maybe Brother Yance. Jack Yance was the director, maybe. I really think it was somebody right before him. Uh, but one of the speakers was uh, Brother Grisham who was, I think, the promotional director for home missions at the time. And uh, I was sitting in the choir um, the night that he preached. And he talked about starting a church we use the term now, planting a church. I don't think we used that term back then. It was just starting a church. And 
sitting in the choir on the front row. What he got done, I do someday. Someday I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. And so that was the the first time I got that kind of direction. I don't know how long it was after that, but I went to general conference in Tulsa. And again, I don't remember if it was a year later or that year or two years, but I went to a, a banquet that home missions would put on at conference. And Chester Wright was a speaker who I didn't know, but was, um, he didn't even at that time have the notoriety or the, was not known like he is now, but he was starting a church in Annapolis, Maryland. And I went in there just thinking, uh, this is a banquet to go to, and I need to go to stuff like this if I'm ever going to start a church. And uh, he got up and just, in what I thought was just going to be a calm, uh, laid back, say nice things banquet. It was... everything but that it was very challenging and casting vision and and it was about the east coast and the need for churches on the east coast and i got more direction there still don't know when but when it happens it's going to be out east it's going to be somewhere where they really need churches and not too long after that, I, again, I, I don't, I'm not good with dates, but at some point after that, we decided to go to make a trip out to the East Coast and just go down the East Coast, starting in New York till we ran out of money and go back home and just kind of pray and explore and... and when we got back back to Alexandria where we were living at the time, we just, I don't know, we just knew it was gonna be New Jersey because of all the places we were at, it was the place So Sister Delane, whenever you guys knew he was New Jersey. So that was mutual, or was that a feeling that one of you had that kind of took the lead and the other kind of had to come behind, or both of you know as you're going through, this is, this is the place God's called me to? We both made up our minds that we were going to um, take separate times of prayer and fasting and come together with our mindset, and both of us fell in love with the same area. It was the same area. In New Jersey, no, no hesitation at all. We both felt it. So, whenever you both felt that strong pull to New Jersey, at what point did you guys look at each other and say, "It's time to go"? We didn't hesitate. To my 
members. I don't remember us. Well, I applied for Christmas for Christ support, uh, and we were approved to go, which it doesn't work that way now. Um, you have to be on site now. They've changed the procedure and process. But we applied to go, and we were approved. And so when we were approved, I would say within a couple of months, we moved. I made one trip out there to find a place to stay. Flew out without her. It was the absolute worst, I don't know, three or four days of my life. Um, it was just all hell. Uh, came against me. Uh, it was like, in fact, I've told this before, this probably won't make it into the final cut here, but I was flying over New York City getting ready to land and the devil just, I mean at the time we're living in Alexandria. We're living in the heartland of Pentecost. We're going to one of the best churches in the world. Got everything you could ever want safe place for the my boy so I don't think the enemy cared a bit filling out applications and planning to go but when it actually got to getting there and finding a place it was a real spiritual assault and I, I, I just like the enemy said are you going to move your son here are you going to uproot your family and come here? And I just kind of shook it off, but I couldn't shake it off the whole time I was there. We couldn't find nothing. I, I was staying with the home missions director, Brother Hazlett, and it got so bad, I finally called Brother Thomas. I said, Brother Thomas, I said, I, I, I got to have some prayer support right now. I said, I can't find a place. And it's just the feeling that's on me is horrible. And it never left while I was there. And I never found a place. But when I got on the plane to leave, the, uh, it never came back. It was like a last ditch effort to try to keep me from doing what I felt God called me to do. So. We left it in the hands of the home missions director to find us a place. We didn't know where we were going until we pulled the U-Haul up in front of 224 Washington Street. We had the second floor of a two-family house in Orange, New Jersey. And that's where we lived for the next seven years. Furniture was pulled up on ropes through the windows, couldn't get it up the couldn't stairs. Get, yeah, couldn't get furniture up the stairs you had to, I had a couple of missionaries in the area show up to help friends of ours one was in Baltimore and the other one was pastoring in Elizabeth New Jersey and we literally hauled furniture up with ropes to the second floor but anyway Sister Jolene whenever y'all were in New Jersey did it ever feel like you were alone there sure it did <laughs> Yeah, and I had never been a pastor's wife. 
and I remember one time sitting at my kitchen table, which was a kitchen table of the time, um, and I remember asking the Lord, I said, I need to talk to somebody. I need, I don't know what to do. And so I picked up the phone to call my sister-in-law and I picked up the phone to call a couple of other ministers' wives who are very well known among us. And uh, I couldn't get anybody to answer the phone. I'm thinking, where are, where, where are they when I need them? And I'm sitting there with my Bible like I did every morning. I said, God, I need somebody to tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. And it was just like a clear voice said, they've never started a church. I'm going to teach you what to do. And from that moment on, I was fine. Isn't I never it crazy how we look to others who can't com- compare to what we're doing instead of actually going to the one who's called us? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that just, that's, I can go back time and time again in my, my life, which I've never done anything as tough as you, as you guys have done. You guys moved from comfort and safety and your safety net to going out on a limb where you guys knew nobody but the home missions director, correct? Right. Tell us a little bit about, it was Orange, New Jersey, correct? Tell us a little bit about the legacy that you guys left in Orange, New Jersey. We started with home Bible studies. Um, We had one connection of a lady who was driving I don't know, hours to get to a church service. There were no churches up there in that area by us that were Pentecostal. Um, the closest one was two hours away. And so she was driving even another hour on the other side. So it would be three hours for her. But anyway, she started um, and coming and we would have it in our apartment on the second floor with his speakers um, in front of us. And he would put it, it was his Bible stand and we would do that and we would have Bible studies up there. We'd have church service up there. Um, and it was just it was a great time it was easy Uh, people on the east coast didn't have any idea what Pentecost was so if you said well we're Pentecostal but we're United United Pentecostal they didn't have a clue that there was a difference so to them they go okay and it was just easy to win people because the difference to me in the east coast and here is they're on the east coast they knew they were lost everybody in the south is saved that was a big thing for me. And so they were easy. So when they came in and they just so readily received the worship, they so readily received what was preached, they absorbed it and they believed it and they never questioned. They just didn't. That was gonna be a question I was gonna ask is how different is it? Because when we talked with Pastor C. Smith, he talked about how in New York, they were more than willing to let you pray for them, anybody. And he, he just talked about, of course, they had great respect for ministry because of their they Catholic uh, upbringing and, and all these different things. And he talked about how here you invite somebody to church and their response is, well, I have a church. Mm-hmm. And, and so he, that was, it, so this basically is, in a way, is the same thing you're saying is right. that, uh, and I've never heard it put that way, but that, that is a very interesting way that they knew that they needed something. They just didn't know what it was. They didn't know was. what it was. And so um, w- when you're, you're there, and what were some of those pivotal moments that it seemed like in that, that seven-year period that you look back on and say, that was a moment where everything changed or, or some kind of moments that stand out to you that were the breakthrough moments that, that let you know in times where maybe you were questioning whether or not you were really where you were supposed to be uh, that assured you that you were in the will of God? Like a specific time that God validated what you were doing. 
I don't remember that that ever happened for me. I mean, I we knew, we never questioned, uh, mm -hmm. thought we would be there for the rest of our lives. Um, you know, sure there was times I'm sure that we got discouraged, whatever, but there was never, ever a discussion to leave, mm -hmm. never. And I've told people before, what do you need to, what you know, what do you, what do you have to do to be successful at starting a church? It's real simple. You stay. You just stay. And um, you know, we had challenges with facilities, and we didn't live in the best neighborhood. And uh, my wife had some physical challenges at the time, and but it never. And we're no heroes, I promise you, but we never discussed. Do you ever remember never. us discussing, let's go back home? Never. Mm -mm. Never. Loved you it. Just have to, you just have to go somewhere to stay. And um, so. So you thought you were going to spend the rest of your ministry in New Jersey. When did that change? Well, that's kind of a long story. Um, my dad was superintendent here while we were out there. And um, I got a phone call from, well, let me back up. I got a phone call to go take a church while we were still in, still in Alexandria. We'd already made up our mind to go start a church and I got a call from somebody that had started a church on the west coast, northwest. And it was like, I want you to come take over. It's like, you don't even have to try out. Just come. I want you to come. And so I guess that was the first, one of the first times that we were challenged to maybe get maybe off track. Back. Yeah. But, you know, didn't even consider that. But then we'd been in New Jersey about eight and a half years by this time, eight, eight and a half. And I got a phone call from somebody in Arkansas to, uh, from a presbyter to go try out for church. And I, I said, man, I'm really honored. And this is after eight and a half years. I hadn't had a call from anybody, hadn't looked to go anywhere. But this call came out of the clear blue and I said, you know, I appreciate that, but we're not going anywhere. But thank you because it was a good opportunity. It was a wonderful opportunity. And it seems like it was within weeks or a week, I got another phone call. And it was again, the kind, kind of the same kind of deal as going to the Northwest. It was, I want you to come take this church. I'm not saying that would have happened, but that's the way it was left with me. I just, I want you to come and it's, it's like a done deal. And, uh, I said, thank you, but we're not going anywhere. And it upset the person. They said, well, would you at least pray about it? And I said, yeah, well, yeah, I'll pray about it. And I probably did a little bit, but not much. And called them back in about a week and said, thank you. We're honored. And I was. I was incredibly honored. But so within another week, I get another phone call. This after eight and a half years of nobody bothering us, nobody saying anything to us. It's not like we were some hot commodity, okay? We're just a couple <laughs> home missionaries with no experience in New Jersey. 
And, and then I got this call. And I got that call about midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. My wife was asleep. And uh, Brandy was born by then, wasn't she? Anyway, so three calls in a matter of weeks. I went and woke her up, and I said, you're not going to believe who just called me. I said, who's that? I said, Brother Harden. This was known as First Church at the time. She said, are you serious? I said, yeah. My dad hadn't called me about any of these things. So anyway, try to make this short. Uh, I'm like, what's going on? You know, so, um, of course, before I got off the phone with him, I said, I appreciate you calling, but we're not going anywhere. We're, I mean, we are so happy here. And again, a little aggravation on the other end of the line. Well, would you at least pray about it? Well, sure, we'll pray about it. So we did, and I sought some counsel this time because this had been just repeated. And, and anyway, long, long story, but we ended up here. So whenever you got back to Arkansas, it was in Little Rock. Yep. And right here. Right here, where we're at. Twenty-eight years ago. Twenty-eight years ago. We'll be in October. So this is home now. Could you imagine if you kept the mindset of I'm going to pray about it a little bit because you pastor a very well-known church in the state of Arkansas and it is a church that is truly blessed with two of the best um, we've told multiple people that we were coming down here to uh, talk with you guys on this podcast and one phrase that just kept coming up and up and up is you will not find any any two more genuine people than brother and sister Lumpkin and I always told them that the first time I really, I've only been in Arkansas for 10 years now. And the first time I really felt like I connected with you all is you guys spoke it because of the times. Was that two years ago? And I wrote down, I, I wish I would have brought it with me, but I wrote down in my Bible I had that always celebrate a glass being half full instead of half empty. You made that statement. Whether you, you, knew that that statement was going to be impactful or not, I will never forget that statement. Just because you are a pastor or somebody who's really followed God's will, things don't always seem to fall in place like you, you, you picture your life, your fairy tale to be. You guys have went over some massive hurdles, and I truly honestly believe that you guys are the modern-day voice for the prodigal son. Can you tell us a little bit about y'all's story, about what you've went through? Well, whew, where do you start with that? I don't even know where to start with that. Uh, let me say something. You remember what I said earlier about when I flew over New Jersey 
and the enemy uh, saying, bringing up my son and my family. You're going to bring him here. He was four years old. Four years old. Had been in daycare in a Christian school and whatever. But once that week was over, we just went. And no, no thoughts about it. No worry about it. But I remember, Jelani, you might... I wanted to remind you of this, that you had a conversation with Sister Davis, who was... She and her husband pastor, still pastor, a great church on Long Island. And you might tell that. If you remember it, I, I remember I remember it. talking to her because when they went there uh, to start a church, I think it's Oyster Bay, isn't it? Yeah. Long Island, um, the Davises, and they've got an amazing work there. She said that when, because I told her his concern, what happened to him on the airplane, and she said when they moved there to Long Island, she was talking to the Lord about her boys, and she said, the Lord just said, if you will put me first and work, um, I'll take care of your children. Don't worry about your children. She was worried about them being growing up yeah. and being saved. And she, the way I remember it, is she said, you moving here is going to be the salvation of your boys. She did, and um, then we moved here. But um, our son, obviously, uh, we've made it pretty public um, with the struggles and all that. And the thing about any kind of a, a situation like what we've been through is it doesn't affect just one person. It affects it affects 20 or so people in their circumference or more. It doesn't affect just one or two people. It's it's big. What what a any kind of an addiction, whether it's food or alcohol or drugs, or if it's, you know, depression. I mean, it affects more than just one or two people. It affects a big group of people. So our whole entire family was um, affected by that. And back then, 15 years ago or so, there were, I didn't know where to go for help. I didn't know who to ask. Nobody in our group of friends that I knew of ever had any problems. So, which is not true. No, but that was my mindset yeah, at the time. Just nobody talks about it. Uh, and so, I started looking outside of us for help because there wasn't any churches that I knew of that had these issues, and uh, among us, and I didn't know where to go for help. But I knew my son needed help, and I was praying and talking to God. And number one, I felt like the worst person in the world, the worst mother in the world, and. Uh, prayed and asked God, what did we do? Please help me know what we did so we can fix it or repent, and which we were doing on a 24-7 basis anyway. And that following Sunday, I, uh, Sister Nona Freeman came and spoke here for us at this church. And when she got up and spoke, and she'd come to speak for us in New Jersey, I heard her speak at Calvary Tabernacle when I was a kid growing up in Indianapolis. I heard her in Fort Smith. I heard at conferences speak. That's all I knew was her amazing story as a missionary. But the Sunday she came here, 
she talked about her own backslidden children and grandchildren. And I'd never ever heard anybody among us admit that they had issues in their families. Because I felt like we were the only ones in the UPC who had family issues. I really did. But I was just, that was my mindset at the time. I don't have brothers and sisters, so I didn't have anything to pull from. Um, and of course, you, you know, his family's amazing. But she spoke about that. And when I talked to her later, she and I were by ourselves. And I said, Sister Freeman, of all the years that I've known you, I've never, ever heard you mention about some of the things you went through as a family. I said, why? Why? Why now? Why have you never, ever addressed this publicly before? And she said, Sister Jelaine, I was never given a platform to address this. Mm-hmm. Because really, it's not something we admit that we have issues among us. That's really what I, how I interpret it. That was my interpretation. And so I'm, when she said that to me, I had already been able to go out and speak at a few places. And um, I thought, God, if you're opening up a platform for me, I will tell I will share, I will not hide, I will bring you glory somehow, some way, if we can. But it's been a journey for the last 15 years of more, more than that, more than that maybe, uh, of going to uh, finding a big Baptist church here in town that had a recovery group. I went there because there was no place else I knew of. I didn't know of anything else. Uh, we'd been to different multiple counselors and rehabs, and we'd already been all that whole gamut. But it was part of the journey. Uh, but I needed to know more because I, I think as a parent you never stop searching you never ever shut the door and say well that's it there's no hope no there's always hope to me and, it, and let me say this at the very beginning of all of this I remember sitting in my office down the hall and I sat there with and I said God I don't have any answers I got more questions than answers and I feel guilty for even asking questions because, you know, we don't ask God questions because you just trust. And, um, I mean, today's generation is different. Y'all can ask questions. Our generation, you didn't dare. It was taboo. Uh, But I was asking God, and I opened up my Bible, and it just came across Hebrews where he said, And now hope is the anchor of my soul that is sure and steadfast. And with that, I run past the veil. What I already been praying when we lived in New Jersey, I I found Dr. Cho's stuff on how to pray through the tabernacle. I've been doing that since 1983, and um, and I said, God, from now on, I will run with hope in my hand past that veil, and remind you of your promises. And um, there have been days when I couldn't remember a promise. There have been days when. Um, I couldn't even think clear. I had panic attacks. You know, I'm in a hospital, and it got some. It's got so bad. He refused to take me. He says, "Okay, you're gonna get it together, cause we ain't going no more. There's nothing wrong with you." So it's part of our journey. But um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for those open doors. I'm thankful for the groups here in town that had those facilities, and now we have our own recovery group here, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, but I, it is a much needed thing among us today, where we can be transparent and real. It helps people. Sister Lumpkin, for our listeners who don't know the story of Trey, mm-hmm. can you kind of fill us in on his story? He had his own business um, and was very successful at it. Him and another young man here at the church. And he was married with a beautiful wife and two beautiful girls. Um, and it got the pressure somehow piled up on him. And he just, he'd never, 
you know, I don't know. I don't can't tell you exactly what happened. That's part of his story that, you know, that's kind of foggy. Uh, but he just fell apart and caused lost their marriage, and um, so it's been a journey of alcohol uh, for him. And so we've had him. We've taken him everywhere we know to go. Um, any place that was suggested, counselors, doctors, uh, rehabs, uh, whatever. Uh, we've we've done it all, to my knowledge, that, to the best of our ability. But even with all of that, with all of that, with all their wise counsel, with all their book knowledge, nothing ever helped any of us more than just the word. And, and his alcohol and bouts of alcohol and um, things that we endured and went through that a lot of people don't, you know, you can't talk about some stuff. Uh, but you still have a hope. You still have, and I think today that if we don't have that anchor, that hope, that stability, which to me, you don't start praying and develop that after a crisis. You've got to have that before a crisis. I think it's crucial to speak honestly about this subject because, as you said, it, it affects so many people. I have an older sister that I don't really know. Um, whenever she was I think I can't remember what grade she was in but she wasn't doing just spectacular in, in school and my parents decided to put her into a Christian academy in Jonesboro and in that academy was the first time someone passed her pills and she overdosed and after the recovery from that overdose she's 14 years older than I am and so by the time I was old enough to really start remembering things she was already out of the home by the time she turned 18 she was she was gone her journey has been a struggle with every substance that you can probably think of uh, crystal meth um, she has two sons that my parents have to raise because um, she's never had any kind of stability I remember uh, one time uh, it was the night that her youngest son was born we had to go to her apartment and we walked into the apartment and you couldn't see the floor from all the just the collection of clothes that either were hers or they were somebody else's and and my dad and I had to clean that apartment out and filled up a dumpster with trying to clean out that apartment because she wasn't going to go back to it uh, that she was going to come back and live with us and so my entire life growing up I saw her she'd get into trouble and come home and then she'd leave and I watched over time growing up what that did to a mom and dad because uh, obviously I watched what it did to her children and I've grown up with a lot of bitterness a, a lot of anger towards her not that I knew her that well but because of what I saw that she did to my mom and dad and what she did to my nephews that I loved and 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 where they would have such glimmers of hope and then late in the night when everybody would be in bed she'd run back away and go back to that old lifestyle and so it's always been this continual journey where she's at today is she's in a court mandated rehab she's going to be there for nine months and uh, recently went and saw her she um, looked a lot better than, than I've seen her in so long uh, this is again getting pretty personal but our last Christmas um, she walked in and uh, when she walked in, I was ready to leave. 
because she walked in and had apparently had taken some pills or something. As she was trying to eat, she was about to fall out of her chair. As soon as she got done eating, while everybody, the rest of the family was opening gifts, she went and hid in a bedroom. And, and I bring this up to just say that I know our family hasn't handled it the best possible way. Uh, when, when, when she would come home, there'd be a lot of conflict. I never really took the time to try and really get to know her, to tr really try and, and love her and to be a brother and be a connection back to God uh, because I had animosity. And, and so one of the things that I'm hoping to gain personally from this conversation is where I went wrong, which I know that we, we didn't handle it right. Again, there was constant conflict. They were con with the disappointment and there would be anger. And what, what can my family do? What can I do to try and help my sister go through recovery? I think your greatest, the greatest lesson Drew, any of us are gonna learn is by our mistakes. That's the things that I remember, how we handled it wrong and how it didn't work. Um, and we're still learning. You don't ever stop learning until they are all the way in and until they're completely delivered. And we've got people in our church who are delivered at the altar, but not everybody gets delivered at the altar. Sometimes life just takes a different course for some people, and I don't understand all of that. And I've had that conversation with God, but that's, and that's in his hands. I don't know. It's for us, I think it's one day at a time. And we pray for God's wisdom. We pray for his love. I don't do well at it some days and he does better, then, then it may flip where he doesn't do as well and I may do better. It's just, it keeps you on your knees praying and pray that we do the right thing. Pray that we say the right thing. Pray, I pray God put people in their path. God put angels in their path. Do whatever you gotta do because we want them saved. But I don't know that there's any, there's not a pat answer. There's not. There are great books, great material, AA, Celebrate Recovery, um, Teen Challenge, whatever is out there. It's all great stuff. But there's not any one path that works for everybody. And until an addict wants to be free, until they really want to, until they're done, it seems like not until they get to that point do we ever see anybody really change. They've got to want it. I want it for them, but they got to want it. So I pray that God put that on them, whatever that is. Has it ever been frustrating to you to see someone go to the altar and get delivered and then like, you've ever almost wondered why can't that happen in our situation? Sure, it has. Uh, and I'm thankful for everybody that gets delivered and we have some amazing people in our church who, I mean, we couldn't operate without them. They're the, some of the best saints here. Um, but it gives me hope for mine. I don't get aggravated by it. I, it gives me hope that it's getting ready to happen for mine. That's how I look at it. I don't take it negative. I think it's a great promise that it's going to happen. It's coming. I want to ask you guys both a question. It's a very heavy question, but it's a very vital question. How do you love through their disappointments? Well, I wanted to say in connection with what she was saying a minute ago, and for you, that all sin is addiction. Not just alcohol, not just drugs. Sin is addictive. 
Now, the way a person's behavior affects a family is probably greater when it's substance abuse because that can cost you your career, cost you your job, cost you your children, cost you your family, cost you your relationship with God. But I try to keep in mind that sin is sin. Addiction is addiction. And my son may struggle or your sister may struggle with addiction, but we're all sinners saved by grace. And we've got to separate how that behavior affects us from the, the knowledge and the acceptance that sin's got a hold of them. For some people, it may, mater- may be materialism, being married to a job, being focused on money. It's still addictive. People, some people are addicted to work. And so I know the way it affects families is different, but I try to keep that in mind. A person, the worst drug addict in the world, is no worse than anybody else that has not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. So you know that that's, and as my wife said, as Jelaine said, I. We've done everything that we can do and have no regrets. We'll do it again. Rehabs. I got a pretty good library of substance abuse. Uh, God gave me a message years ago after talking with my son one night when he just finally just let it all go and I had no answers for him. I've lost everything. I lost my kids. I lost my marriage. I lost my job and I had no answers for him because he did he lost all of that and I went back to my my house he was living in an apartment next door to us I went back to the house and I preached this message I think in Jonesboro but um, the Lord just gave it to me how to escape the pit of hopelessness and uh one of the points in that message was I, I still believe in the miraculous. I still believe one time to the altar will be the last time. We're showing uh, Brother Lumpkin right now notes on Brian's phone from whenever he preached that at our church. Yeah. And it wasn't until that message, Pastor Lumpkin, that our church didn't get out of the pit of desperation and hopelessness because, like you said, we, we look at, we, we qualify sin as, well, it's not as bad as. When in reality, like you just, I'm just re-preaching what you just said, that we're all sinners. But to show love through someone's hurt and through someone's hopelessness, it, it speaks volumes of character. It really does. I would, I would like you, Sister Lumpkin, to tell us how you love through all the, the, the bitterness and through the, um, the trials. How, how do you love through all that? I remember sitting on my porch many times talking to the Lord during this time, um, and I would remind him, 
You gave me a mother's heart. What do I do with it when it's broke? What do I do with a mother's heart that has been shattered? How do I, how do I not get angry? How do I not get so to the place where I give up? And it would be at those times when the, just like the Lord would come alongside me and say, I am the heart mender. I guard your heart and your mind. Trust me, my nail scarred hands with your heart. And um, to me that there, you go back to our foundation, to what we have always been taught and believed in. And so that has been a big thing, um, trusting, trusting the one who knows better than I, the beginning from the end. And I have to trust that. And, and besides, it's my son. I'm gonna, a mother's gonna love no matter what. Your mother, you can't change that. So you just do, you love them. Not everybody does, but the mama does. That mama's gonna be there. And how many ball game guys have you heard talk on the news and say, Hey, Mom. Hey, well, it's like my husband said. They never say anything about the dad. <laughs> they don't. It's the mom because mom is always going to be in their corner no matter what. You know, one of the things we've learned through sitting with counselors and books and everything else is the person that's addicted, and I, I can't tell you that I, I still understand this or believe it, but... I always thought the addiction was to the substance. It was to that they they drink or they shoot or they smoke because their body craves it, okay? But so much of what I've heard and what I've learned is that it's just self-medication. It's trying to numb what's going on inside that individual. I would almost rather it be just a physical addiction, but it is, it is masking what's wrong on the inside of that person. So your sister, it, it, if you just think of it in terms of just give up the alcohol. Just give up the dope. Just give it up. Just go cold turkey. But until people get the healing on the inside, that's the way they cope. They self-medicate. Some people eat. Some people drink. Some people shoot up. Some people work 24-7. But it's a mask. And when I, when, I, when I understand that, it makes me a little more merciful and a little more realizing, you know, it's just not a desire to get wasted and just have fun. It's, it's, a, it's a coping mechanism. And so I'm not just praying for deliverance from a substance. I'm praying for the healing, the inner healing that, that people need. So, so when you say that is the hard part of the whole thing and, and what a parent and, or a sibling of a person that's dealing with these substances, it's finding what it is that is lacking within the person that they're trying to fill that void with. 
would that is that is that like so like with me in my situation with me it's trying to find out what it is she's trying to numb yeah it's like putting a band-aid we put band-aid on people that come through our church doors and maybe they've been sexually abused as children we say well go to the altar and pray through talk in tongues that's going to that's not going to fix i mean thank god for that thank god we have that but whoever sits down and talks to them and help them to deal with and pull back it's like when you go to counseling they tell you when you start dealing with people's hurts it's like peeling a layer of an onion it's one layer at a time until you get to the real core you know you go to a doctor and you say you've got a cold well maybe you've got lung cancer but they're going to treat it with sinus medicine or whatever until they and you got to get to the core of what's really going on inside of somebody instead of just putting a band-aid on it i've got a book that's called feelings buried alive never die and if we don't get it out, what we're dealing with, you will end up with a physical sickness, whether it's cancer or sugar diabetes or high blood pressure or whatever it may be. But if we're not giving a, a safe place to where we can talk and say, hey, I was abused, or hey, I, I saw things or I heard things when I was a child, or until I, they don't have a safe place to talk about that and get that out, then it's gonna, it's gonna cause them some you know, to turn to other places to heal that trauma. Because when you go to bed at night, I mean, I've dealt with this. You go to bed at night, my brain won't shut off because I'm thinking, I should have fixed this. I should have done that. I should have said this. I should have gone there. I should have one more book to read or one more counselor to talk to. Or It doesn't shut off. And so you've got to have somebody, and thank God we've had, God's allowed us that connection between my husband and I to be able to say, I said, babe, I'm really struggling with this. I need you to tell me, am I wrong? Am I in the right grind, the right direction? And, and we've thanked the Lord has provided that balance for us to have that communication. And not always have we agreed, but it's been able to get it out and not be judged by what I'm dealing with on the inside at that very moment. And uh, until I felt safe enough to do that, I started having panic attacks or dealt with my own depression. Um, so I think, I think for so many people coming into the church today, it's great because they have a, so many of our churches now are giving a safe place for people to talk and we're, you know, I've got women in our church who are sexually abused. And I got other women who come, I say, you need to go pray with that girl up there because you're going to be able to minister to her in a way I can't. And I think that's a big thing for us to free people that they're not a prisoner to their past. But God has gone has healed you through that. Now then you go minister to somebody else and let them go do that. Pastor Lumpkin, I alluded to your sermon at Because of the Times a couple years ago. And I will never forget when you stood up on the platform and, and claimed your promise from God that your son will be coming home. My question to you is, what do parents do of a promised prodigal while they wait? They just wait and trust. They just, you know, I don't know. They just, uh, they just trust. I, I don't know what else to tell you. You just, you know, there's, they'll tell you when it comes to addictions, there's relapse is just part of it. Um, but, 
everybody relapses. You know, if you, if, if you got mad this week, you relapsed. Now, the way that affects everybody else is probably different. It's not going to be like you relapsed and lost from alcohol and went back to alcohol and lost a job, but it's still relapsed. I've said before, the only difference in a backslider and me is the amount of time it takes me to repent. Wow. That's why Paul said I died daily. When, I'm, when, when the conviction hits, I repent. For a prodigal or a backslider... Sometimes they don't, they don't respond to that voice for a year or two years or 20 years or whatever. That's the only difference in me and a backslider is how long it takes me to repent. And so you just, you just keep going and you just believe that it's, it's going to happen. And it, it kicks, it's like a kick in the stomach when a relapse happens. It's like, you know, my son a couple years ago went two years sober. And we think, two years? Okay, man. We got this. And in fact, I was preaching out of town. I was preaching in Kokomo, Indiana. Sunday afternoon. I preached Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. I get a phone call. And I had to preach that night. After preaching faith that morning, I had to and we're just to the place we're not I don't know we're just not worried about saving face or or trying to be something we're not if we've been knocked down the air's been kicked out of us sorry it's what you're going to get from the pulpit that's the, and you say well you need more faith than that probably but people need our generation we could hide all this stuff years ago but now you don't do that with this generation they want transparency they want you to be real and if i can't be real i'm just not going to be nothing that doesn't mean i'm real all the time and i want to say this too and i want this in the interview we're not poster kids. No, Lord, no. There's people. Mm. It's one thing we've learned. When we kind of crack the door open on some of our issues, we have been flooded right. with letters, phone calls, one on one conversations from people who I couldn't, uh, their stories are much, much, uh, I don't know if the word's worse, but we are not poster. No. We're no heroes. We're not. We're not perfect parents, though we've been good parents. We beat ourselves up. I think I'm probably at peace with it. I just, you know, wasn't the best, but I wasn't the worst. But, you know, your parents, I'm sure, question, 
But the, the point is, God gave everybody a choice. When we sat in, in our first family counseling session in my son's first rehab, and the whole family was there, all of us, not just, I mean, my sisters and And they made it very plain in that. And it wasn't even a Christian setting, Christian rehab. But they, they made it plain. Because I started crying, which is not unusual for me. But I, they asked me a question, and the, and then the, the, the counselor said, well, uh, what's the tears about? I said, are you kidding me? What's the tears about? I don't even know when he started drinking. And, you know, you're asking these, and, but, but the point is, right away, he established the fact that you are not the reason. She is not the reason. This family, I don't care how dysfunctional it may be or not be, it's not an excuse. People make a choice to do what they do. Now, that doesn't mean it's so easy for us to not... For him saying that, and I thought, well, yeah, I'm, I'm the I'm the poster child for great dads right here. This is me. <laughs> you still question. But the fact is, people make choices, and regardless of how bad they hurt or how bad they're 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 having to mask it, they still made a choice. While other people had the same things and chose not to go that direction, still a choice. Sister Lumpkin, I want to ask you about. The paperclip. Doubt it because of the times you wore. Oh, safety pin. Or safety pin, excuse me. Yeah. Lost my mind there. It's okay. But I want you to explain what a safety pin means to you. This is something that a lot of people are probably thinking this guy's went off the deep end here. But you wore a safety pin. I'm just going to let you tell a story. Yeah, there was, um, you know, you hear people come to you with their problems or whatever and they're some of you thinking seriously that's a problem man I'd love to have that problem that's all I have to deal with and you get to that place you compare problems you just do you just, and we've been through so much but a couple of years ago at the last presidential election there was you know the colleges some of them were shutting down classes because kids were like some of the kids were dealing with the stress and the pressure of a new election and da -da, and all that goes with that and so they started wearing these safety pins in college to say I feel your pain we're gonna you know we're a safe place for you to come to because you know we're not we don't approve of what happened either but so we're all schools dismissed and y'all can go together with and so your safety pin identified with other people who were feeling your same pain. And I thought, that's not the college kid. That's what they're dealing with. That's their pain on election, really? And I thought, if we gave a identity to some of our people among us, that we're a safe place for you to come and talk. We're a safe place. And so then I remember reading in a book, too, about a lady who wrote a book, Laura Beth Jones, on... Um, Jesus life coach and in that book she talked about when she was a young girl she asked the Lord Lord whenever you think about me will you let me see a ladybug and she goes on to tell how many times throughout her life in a snowstorm one time a ladybug fell on her windshield when she really felt like she was going through something 
um, another time she said she was um, going through I think maybe a divorce or something and she said uh, she saw a ladybug and it was like in a in a pool somewhere in, the, in Mexico where you wouldn't normally see a ladybug so I just really thought God if you would ever let me whenever you think about me whether it be a ladybug my thing is fresh flowers or um, a beautifully wrapped package and there's been little things like that that the Lord would just show me things so on my safety pin I have a ladybug that hangs there and I ask ladies at ladies conferences right now just bow your head and ask the Lord whenever you think about me would you let me see I said don't tell anybody it's amazing how many women will text me later or send me a Facebook post or something saying thank you for that because God has showed up so many times over the last few months or whatever but the safety pin thing I've got a ladybug hanging there because it reminds me that he thinks about me and he's my safe place and so I want to be a safe place for other people to be able to come and know that if they talk to us, they're safe. We won't tell anybody. We'll just take it to God, and it's safe. And I don't give them to everybody, only a few. <laughs> so to the person that's out there that has found themselves in a similar situation that you've been in uh, with a, a young uh, with a child that's struggling or the sibling that's out there, uh, where should they go from here? What would be, uh, of course, we know you've got to keep believing that they're going to come back, but are there any study materials that you would point them to, any recommended reading, any kind of resources that a mom and dad needs to get a hold of, or, or a, a, anybody that's, if a parent, if their parents are, are struggling with this, like in my case, my nephews, where would you point someone right now in order to, to take a, a step to better gain either understanding of how to handle their situation or, or something that may have, may have helped you and encouraged you both? Uh, well, we, it's like he said earlier, we have bought so many books over the past 15 or 18 years on counseling, on rehab, on whatever it is. We, we've bought them and we've read them. But when it all was said and done, if I hadn't kept my connection here at the church, and there's many times I walked through these church doors and did not feel like being here, many times. But because I was the pastor's wife, I felt like I had an obligation. I would stand on that front row and I would worship. Don't ever lose your worship. If we ever stop being thankful for every breath, that we have a hope. Because how many people out there do we know, don't know, don't have what we have? Yeah, we're going through life. We're dealing with the struggles, but at least we know where our hope is. We know that, and that God is faithful. I'm holding on to that. So worship, being thankful, pray through the tabernacle every day. To me, that's huge. To me, that's huge. To me, you have, you don't have that. And there's been times when I couldn't pray. Let me just say that. There were times when I could not pray. Seasons. Seasons, yeah. absolutely. And I remember one time a scripture came, and I said, where it talks about when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord said, I'll raise up a standard against it. And I said, God, what is the standard? It's got to be more than the length of my dress or my hair. What is the standard? And it was just like the Lord said, I have raised up others to pray for you when you cannot pray. That's my standard. It's the other intercessors who are holding you up in prayer right now. So to me, if you are, if you are spending time it's like Pop Lumpkin used to say, 
you're investing and you're putting in stocks and dividends and you may have to draw from them someday. Well, that's what I was doing. I was drawing from all that time of investing in the word and in prayer, but I had something to draw from. And that is like, I, I felt like he was saying, now we've got one book that we promote hugely that my husband was mentioned, but to me, it's always gonna, it's just gonna be the church is my anger, the church. After we ask you this final question, Pastor, I want you to give us your recommended reading. But I want to paint a picture of what we're doing right now. We're sitting in Pastor Lumpkin's office at his desk, and behind where he sits, behind the desk where he sits, there's a phrase that says, not one step back, that's been taped to your desk. Looks like it's been there for a little while. Looks like it's got some wear and tear. Looks like it could have had some tear stains dripped on it. What does that phrase mean to you? I was given this at uh, James Burton's funeral. Hmm. Uh, And I think it was uh, Norman Pasley who was doing the preaching because the Burtons were out of that church. James Burton was maybe the greatest missionary the United Pentecostal Church has ever had. He didn't get a lot of notoriety, but when he went to Venezuela, there was a handful of believers. And when he was in a couple of churches and when he left, there was over 50,000 believers. And this was his slogan. And Norman Pasley handed that out to everybody at the funeral, not one step back. So I taped it here. Um... The book my wife referred to, who told us about this book? Anyway, it's called Prayers for Prodigals, 90 Days of Prayer for Your Child by James Banks. And it is 90 days of prayers, each, each prayer, and it's a, it's, it's, it's a prayer. Um, and, it's, and it's 90 days of prayer. And I promise you, whether it's lost kids or whatever, like my wife said a while ago, there's going to be times when you can't form the words to pray. You can, maybe, and it just you feel like you're going through the motions. But there's never been a time in the last... In the last... uh, (laughs) When I went through this book, in 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 going through it in 19 never been a time that I picked up this book I promise you this I don't care what you think never been a time I picked up this book and read the prayer for that day that it didn't lead me into prayer James Banks I don't know what he is he's probably Baptist not sure but he had prodigals son that was a prodigal maybe more than one and these are prayers and and the deal is it's just every statement in the prayer is based on a scripture so when you read it yeah you're reading james bank's prayer but it's the word it's just it's the word and it's powerful um james banks is coming to word of flame in november in november we're doing a prodigals conference 
Prodigals and Those That Love Them, I think is the name of the conference. He's one of the speakers. Nick Mahaney's a speaker. Steve Donaldson's a speaker. Um, Diane and Donna Long, which started the Prodigals Ministry in Alexandria. And um, November the 22nd anyway, and the 23rd. Yeah, it's two-day deal, and uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. Is there anything that our guests, if they want to attend that conference, they need to do specifically or just show up? No, they need to register. They need to... Uh, there is a cost to it, and mostly the cost is not just to help defray the expenses, but to, so we know how many is going to be here that we can, can, will have plenty of seats. But it's, I think it's $25 a couple, and you register at our website. Our website. W-A-F-L-R, mm -hmm. or Word of Flame L-R. Word of Flame L-R. Dot com. We are very grateful to you both for spending your time on this Saturday to speak with the, the two of us. Uh, we've seen your passion and your love uh, expressed uh, in many different uh, facets of this conversation from New Jersey and to talk about your son and then uh, ministering to people out there that find themselves in a similar situation. Here in um, a conclusion uh, today, we would like to give you both an opportunity to uh, share just whatever's on your heart. Maybe you want to share something that we've talked about. Maybe it's something that we've missed, but we want to give you an opportunity for our final word to connect with somebody out there that's listening to this. And we would greatly appreciate uh, hearing your input on really just anything you'd like to share. One thing that we learned, and that's to be thankful for every good day. Um, we, every good day, we thank God for it. Uh, there will be bad times, but when you have the good moments, we, we would rejoice at a good word, at a, good, at a phone call, at a positive conversation, at anything. We didn't take it for granted, and we still don't. We are thankful. That's my whole thing. If we're not thankful for the good things, how can he trust us with more if we're not thankful for what he's already given us? In fact, driving here today, I said, God, you have blessed me with so many things that I'm not even aware of, and I don't want to miss thanking you for those things. You bless me more than I deserve. And um, we're blessed with a great church and great people and a great foundation. We're just, so to me, don't lose or feel like you're alone. That's the big thing that the enemy will do to all of us, separate us, make us feel isolated, make us feel like we don't fit. I remember going to general conferences. He make me go kicking and screaming, but I would sit up in the balcony because he's on the platform, but I would sit as far away from people as I could get because I didn't feel like I fit anyplace else. And there would always be somebody that God would bring. Sister Burton was one of those people who sat down beside me and just patted me on the leg. And so just when you think you're alone, God sends Absolutely. that person. But don't isolate yourself. There's more out there than we realize. Pastor Lumpkin, can you give us your final thought, something that's your heartbeat right now? <clears throat> Well, the, the, I guess the thing that we've shared that's resonated more perhaps than any other thing we've said over the years was a story that I told at uh, BOTT. And it was one of those steps 
uh, in how to escape the pit of hopelessness, and that is to continue to praise the Lord. Be thankful. And to be thankful. And the time that I sat in an AA meeting with my son, and they went around the room, and I'd never been in one before, and they were <clears throat> given their first name, hey, I'm John, and I've been sober for 10 years, and everybody would clap, and then they'd go to the next one, and it's going around the room like that, you know. I didn't know what I was going to say when it got to me, but anyway, and people would clap 25 years sober 10 years sober six months sober and it got to this teenager over to my left and he said i don't remember his name let's just say it's john my name's john and i've been sober for 24 hours and everybody clapped and i went home and i told that story to jelaine and i said we're not going to wait for a 25-year pin to be thankful. To celebrate. We're going to celebrate every small step that comes. I said, we're going to do it. And so if it's a phone call and we know where he's at, we're going to be thankful. If he got a job, his first day at job, we're going to be thankful. We're not going to wait for two years sobriety. And so I think that's resonated more with people that maybe than anything else we've said, that uh, we're going to celebrate the small steps. The recovery is a process, and I think that's probably the reason why it's called Celebrate Recovery, is celebrating all of the steps that it takes to get to the person that's finally restored and finally recovered. We'd like to thank, again, you both for coming on. Thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, Pastor Lumpkin, in closing, would you uh, say a prayer over those that may be listening that resonate with the stories that have been told? Dear Jesus, we come to you today. We are thankful for the opportunity to share our story our ongoing story and I thank you for the opportunity to perhaps say something to the people that listen to this that would generate and cause hope we believe that you're able to do more than we can ask or think but I know God there's people that are hurting they need direction they need to know that you know where they're at. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would take our, our words, our experiences, um, and speak into somebody's mind and spirit right now that needs your help. You're, you are faithful. You are faithful. You are always faithful. You have always been faithful. You will always be faithful. And we count on that today, Lord. Bless your people. Bless the people, God, right now who need to hear from you. I ask it in Jesus' name and know that you are able. I pray for every prodigal.
that is stumbling, trying to find their way, I pray that they would come to their senses and return back to the Father's house. In the name of Jesus, God, let them come to themselves and come back to the Father. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank everybody for tuning in with us today. Um, Brother and Sister Lumpkin, thank you so much for scheduling time with us. And you guys have been listening to A Crucial Conversation.